Acts chapter 26 this morning. I read a story this week, and please, I will preface it by saying, don't get your theology from the following story, okay? Um, and from the onset, I think you'll understand why. A cat died and went to heaven. Clearly, we know all dogs go to heaven. Cats won't make it. Nonetheless, a cat died and went to heaven. And uh, once it arrived, it was admitted into heaven. And just beyond the gates, there was an angel there that said, Hey, I, I am, my purpose is to make your stay here as comfortable as it possibly can. Is there anything that you desired on earth that you want here in heaven? And the cat thought for a little bit and said, you know what, there is one thing. Throughout the course of my life, I always had to sleep on the cold, hardwood floors of the barn, and I would really like to have a soft pillow where I can lay down. The angel said, no problem, right away, I'll have it delivered to your mansion. So the cat went on down. Sure enough, the pillow was delivered later that day. A few days later, uh, a few mice died and went to heaven. They, again, were admitted entrance into heaven. Obviously, God is a very merciful God if He's letting mice in. But, nonetheless, they made it. The same angel came by and said, my job here in heaven is to make sure that your stay is as comfortable as it possibly can be. Is there anything you desired on earth that you didn't have, but man, you would like to have it here in heaven? They said, you know what? There is one thing. We always came together as a group. And throughout our life, we were always running from everybody. And I mean, we were running from the cats and the dogs and the, and the farmer's wife with a broom. I mean, we were always running. And we always came together and said it would be nice to have some rollerblades. And so the angel said, no problem, I'll get those delivered to your mansions. Sure enough, they arrived at their mansion. They got their rollerblades. A few days later, the same angel that had spoken to the mice, Mises, however you would say that, the mice, I'm, I'm aware how you would say it, but the mice and the cat, it was making the rounds as it normally did a few weeks after they had been admitted into heaven and gotten all the things taken care of. And so he showed up at the mansion of the cat and he was checking on it first and he knocked on the door, the cat came to the door and the angel said, how are you enjoying your stay? Is there anything that could be better or, or anything that you need to, to kind of make it better? And, and the cat said, no, everything is wonderful. The pillow is working out great. In fact, this is just about the happiest I've ever been. And honestly, the meals on wheels you've been sending by were really a nice touch. Theologically accurate, I, I think not. But I think the story is nonetheless helpful to introduce the topic of which we're going to speak today. And that is happiness. Happiness. Those of you who were here on Wednesday night, you're like, Amen, Brother Andrew. We could use a break from what you spoke about Wednesday night. Uh, the guys came to me after Wednesday night and said, Brother Andrew, the message didn't record. I was like, yeah, right. You deleted that. Nonetheless, happiness is what we'll speak on today. Let me ask you a question. What to you... Is happiness. What is happiness to you? Is happiness a long vacation, a break from the rigors of life, toes in the sand, a drink in your hand, listening to some good music? What is happiness to you? Maybe happiness is a good book and a uh, warm blanket and a nice fireplace on a wintry day. Uh, for millennials, maybe this would be your equivalent, your parents' Netflix password and a rainy day. I guess that would be a similar thing. 
What is happiness? Where do you find happiness? How many of you in here this morning, just by saying uh, a loud amen, would like to be a happy person? Amen. I think we all would. Maybe your goals or the things that bring you happiness are a little bit more meaningful. Maybe you like to spend time with your family. I certainly think that brings me happiness. Maybe it's seeing your loved ones succeed. What makes you happy? In this chapter of Acts that we're going to be speaking from, just three verses is all we'll read this morning. We'll skip around a little bit. But the previous three chapters, Acts 24, 25, and 26, are three different trials of the Apostle Paul. Uh, on, in the first chapter there, 24, he is placed on trial before a guy by the name of Felix. Now, Felix is a bad guy. He serves as a sort of governor under Caesar, and he oversees the financial and, in some cases, the uh, uh, governmental issues of Judea. And Paul is brought before him, and he's a bad guy. He's pretty unique, though, because he is the first man ever to work his way from slave to governor. And you would think that maybe some of that humility would transition, but actually history teaches us that he became extremely cruel because of that transition. He stepped on a lot of people's throats to get to where he was. And so he is, uh, Paul is testifying before this guy by the name of Felix. And Felix comes to the conclusion that he can't find anything wrong with Paul. In fact, it's pretty unique. The high priest of uh, the elders... And uh, a a guy by the name of Tertullus, who essentially is an attorney, I mean a smooth talker, I mean this guy could sell, you know, uh, ketchup to a tomato. I I don't really know where I was going with that, but, but he is a smooth talker. And he comes up and flatters Felix, and he tells him how good he is and how powerful he is, and then he criticizes and tries to condemn Paul. Now the problem is, Felix was like, you know what, he's not really done anything wrong, but I don't want to cause a stir, so I'll put Paul in prison. So for two years, the Apostle Paul has been under house arrest in Acts chapter 24. Now in Acts chapter 25, he's now called to testify once again on his behalf. Acts chapter 25, a transition takes place from Felix... To a guy by the name of Festus. Now, I'm glad I don't have that name, but it goes from Felix to Festus. History teaches us that Festus is a little bit better of a, a person and a pretty decent ruler. He serves in the same role as a governor under Caesar in the area here of Judea. And Festus, once again, once hearing the testimony of Paul, says, You know what? I can't really find anything wrong with what you've done. They're saying you've done these things, but there's nothing wrong with what you've done. And so he again makes the decision, I can't really do that much to you. So he continues this home imprisonment. Now in Acts chapter 26, a guy by the name of King Agrippa, his real name is Herod Agrippa. That name Herod, you're probably very familiar with that throughout history. Because this guy, King Agrippa, his, grand, his great-grandfather was the Herod that tried to kill Jesus at his birth. His grandfather was the guy who, tri- who did kill John the Baptist. And his father is the guy that killed the first apostle, James. Martyred him. Now, obviously this guy is probably not the guy you want to be testifying in front of. If, if 
Killing Christians is all in his family tree. Nonetheless, the Apostle Paul is called to testify on his behalf. He stands before King Agrippa, and that is where we're at in verse number 1 of chapter 26. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy. Really, the whole sermon is taken from that phrase. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all the customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently." The Apostle Paul is now standing literally at trial and he says, How you feeling? I think I'm pretty happy. You know, it's funny, a lot of times after sports contests, the, the, there's obviously one winning team and one losing team and they all have to have certain media obligations. They go to the post-game presser and the reporter asks the guy who just lost the Super Bowl or the Stanley Cup or whatever the event is, they ask him, how do you feel about your performance tonight? And they say, well, we lost. In fact, uh, I watched one this week that was pretty comical to me. Hall of Fame coach Mike Ditka, after a loss, had microphones all shoved in his face. And they're thinking, hey, Mike, uh, they're asking him, Mike, what do you think about your performance? How are you doing? And you could tell he was very snappy. And every question, he just came back angrily. And one of the reporters said, what's wrong with you, Mike? He said, if you were two and seven, maybe there'd be something wrong with you too. You see, when things are hard, it's... Hard to feel good about them, but Paul is literally going through a trial of life, literally and figuratively, a trial of life, and the Bible says, I think myself happy. Here's what we're going to speak about this morning. Three priorities to finding happiness in the trials of life. Three priorities to finding happiness in the trials of life. Number one, here's what Paul did. He followed God's plan for his life. Take your Bible to Acts chapter 9, and we'll find this truth. Acts chapter 9, this is the Damascus Road experience of Paul. In fact, in this passage, he is not called Paul yet. His name is still, still Saul of Tarsus. And the Lord is about to confront him. He is a persecutor of Christians. In fact, he has just consented to a young man's death who testified on behalf of Jesus. He is literally an assassin of the church. Jesus comes, knocks him to the ground. A bright light shines on the Damascus road. And here we are in Acts, uh, Acts, Acts number 9. Acts chapter number 9. I want you to see this with me. Verse number 15. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. Now this is the Lord telling Ananias, a disciple, to go basically help and console and restore Saul. And, and the Bible says, He is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, God tells Ananias, a disciple, He says, No, I know you're hesitant, 
to welcome in this guy into the Christian family. I, I realize that you're worried it might be a trick. I realize you're worried that it might come back against you. After all, he's killing Christians. But here I want to tell you, don't worry, Ananias. You go, you restore him, you welcome him into your home. Because I have chosen him to bear my name before kings. That's all the way back in Acts 9. Now we're in Acts chapter 26. Years have passed by and Paul is fulfilling God's plan for his life. Did you know there is no happiness? There is no true joy that can be found outside of God's plan for your life. And here's the thing, God does have a plan for your life. In fact, you'll notice that Paul is a called servant. God had a plan, a specific plan. His plan was that he would testify and present Jesus before kings, before the Gentiles. God had a plan and a place of service for Paul. God has a plan and a place of service for you too. In fact, it's so thorough and so sovereign. God says of Jeremiah, Before I formed thee in the belly... I ordained thee to be a prophet. What does that mean? It means before he was even his, in his mother's womb, God had a calling on his life. And I don't just believe that goes to just preachers. I think God has a plan for all of us. God has called us all to be in service to Him. God wants us all to be willing to go and bear His name before whoever we might come in contact with. He's a called servant. But I want you to notice, this only came about because of complete surrender. Complete surrender. Acts chapter 9, I want you to notice in verse number 6, how Paul got from Acts chapter 9 to Acts chapter 26. One question is the key to the whole thing. How does he go from being the persecutor of Christians to the guy testifying before King Agrippa? Acts chapter 9, verse number 6. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? There's the key to Paul's life. Uh, That's it. The first question he ever asked the Lord is this. What do you have me to do? Uh, He tells him to go to Ananias' house and be there for a few days. Guess what? Paul does it. And throughout the course of his life, we see over and over and over again, Paul having a plan and God changing his plans. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, we see Paul's desire is to go to Asia. He wants to take the gospel to Asia, which is modern day Turkey. He wants to go to Asia Minor and present Jesus to them. But the Spirit forbids him from going... He goes to sleep and a vision appears to him. It's a man of Macedonia saying, come, help us, preach to us. And Paul wakes up and says, we know assuredly that God has called us to Macedonia. Now here's what most of us would have done. Well, I want to go to Asia. So I'm going to go to Asia. But the problem is, Paul waited. He understood God's plan was not in Asia. And so he went to Macedonia. You say, why are you saying all this? Because the question is still asked. Even in Acts 15, even in Acts 26, the question of Paul's heart is this, Lord, what will thou have me to do? What is it that you want me to do? Did you ask at any point this week what God would have you to do today? 
I mean, clearly all of our schedules are so digitized and I mean, they're all planned out. Aren't you thankful that Facebook auto migrates everybody's birthdays and everybody else's calendars into your iPhone calendar? Amen. I mean, we pull up our calendar and we've got, we've got our months planned out. Everything's taken care of. But I wonder if there's space in your schedule for God to book an appointment. I wonder if God said, hey, I want you to do something. Yeah, but God, I've got a 10 o'clock. I can't cancel that. And God, I've got something else this afternoon. I can't cancel that. God says, I have something for you. The true place of finding happiness is when we say, God, your will is better than my own. And there's a big difference between commitment to God and surrender to Him. I said this to my Sunday school class the other day as we were on our Zoom meeting, but there's a big difference between commitment and surrender in that we every year, at the beginning of the year, we do what's called uh, New Year's resolutions. And what we're doing is we're committing to a cause, right? We're committing to lose some weight. We're committing to read some books. We're committing to spend more time with family. We're committing to something. And we resolve within ourselves to find a way to accomplish that task. But commitment and surrender are totally different. Because I want you now to imagine a man with a gun to your head. And you now have to say, I surrender. That man holds the gun and he holds the power and now he says, okay, I want you to stand on one leg. What's your reaction? Well, if you truly are surrendered and you realize he has the power, you stand on one leg. He says, I want you to hop up and down, you know, like the old games we used to play. You do whatever the guy with the gun says. Why? Because you're surrendered to him. Now, over here, commitment is within the realm of your power. I'm committed, I'm resolved, I'm going to try by the best of my ability to to be disciplined and exercise, whatever. No, no, no. Surrender is, I realize you hold the power, I surrender it all to you. In fact, there's foreign languages where commitment has replaced the word surrender. Because they mean very much the same thing in English. The problem is within the church, I think, commitment has replaced surrender. Where we say, God, it's in your hands. God, I trust you. Wherever you want me to go, however long you want me to stay there, whatever it is you want me to do, God, I surrender my life to you. And that's truly the way you follow God's plan for your life. The first priority of finding true happiness in the trials of life is following God's plan for your life. I want you to notice, secondly, we must focus on God's priority in life. Focus on God's priority in life. Take your Bible to Acts chapter 26. Back where we were this morning, our passage... Paul is called to testify on behalf of himself before King Agrippa. There have been false accusations and claims made about what truly is condemning him. But I want you to see how clever the Apostle Paul is. He's so clever that when given the chance to speak, oh, he's going to speak. It's like telling a dog, sick him to a T-bone, right? I mean, he is just ready. Notice in verse number 12, what Paul does here. He's now testifying on his own account before King Agrippa. He says, Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw 
in the way, a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about uh, me and them which journeyed with me. And we were all fallen to the earth. I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of the things which, in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them at Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance." I want you to notice now in verse number 27. Paul is called to testify on his own behalf. A guy whose lineage has the deaths of Christians all throughout it. The, the, his father killed uh, an apostle. His grandfather killed John the Baptist. His great-grandfather tried to kill Jesus. That's his family tree. And here's Paul's priority. Verse 27. King Agrippa... Believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. What is he saying? This is no different than when you and I take the gospel and share it with somebody and we say, would you like to do that today? We go through the plan of salvation. God has God loved you and even though you were a sinner, Christ died for you so that you wouldn't have to face eternity, uh, eternal separation from God, but that you could be... Uh, you could be made again with God. Your relationship with Him could be restored through the blood of Jesus Christ. We, we tell them all this, and all you have to do is believe in your heart that Jesus paid for your sins and accept by faith His payment as the only way to salvation. If you'll do that, you can be saved. And then we say, would you like to do that today? And Paul here offers the opportunity for King Agrippa to be saved. Would you like to become a Christian, King Agrippa? Do you believe the prophets that I've spoken about? Do you believe the message of the gospel? King Agrippa's answer is incredibly sad. Verse number 28, Then Agrippa said unto him, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. When called to testify on his own behalf to a guy who holds the power to kill him, you know what Paul's priority was? To be a witness for Christ. It was his priority in life. It was the thing that he focused on. They brought him before kings and, and before governors who held the power to kill him. And just about every chance that he got, he witnessed to them. He did not testify on his own behalf. He witnessed to them about the gospel of Jesus. Paul was unashamed of the gospel. In fact, he said that, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Paul knew who he believed in and was persuaded that he was able. He wasn't ashamed of Jesus, friend. Around the water cooler, are you ashamed of Jesus? I mean, there's a whole lot of things we're not ashamed about talking about. We're not ashamed to talk about the debates. We're not ashamed to talk about football. 
We're not ashamed to talk about our kids' little league soccer practice, who, by the way, you're the only one that cares. We'll talk about whatever it is in the world, but have you ever introduced Jesus into your workplace? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He was unashamed about the gospel. He was unreserved about the gospel. In fact, Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul said this, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. It was his utmost priority. It was number one in his life. Sometimes I think, given the seasons of life, the gospel and being a witness for Christ takes a back seat to other pursuits. He was unreserved. That was his mission. That was God's mission, by the way. And unequally in his life, there was no other thing that took this much emphasis. Romans 10 verse 1, he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. What do you love right now? Oh, sure, we love our families. Uh, we, we, we love uh, maybe the thing that we do or, or the time that we get off, the hobbies that we pursue. What do you love right now? Paul said, my, my desire, my heart's craving, my longing is for my brethren to be saved. In fact, he goes so far in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3 to say, I would wish myself accursed from Christ so that my brethren might be saved. What does that mean? It means Paul was willing to place his salvation on the, on the altar of sacrifice, so to speak. He was willing to give it in exchange for the salvation of those he cared so much for. Sometimes I think that my longing, the, heart, the longings of my heart, the priorities of my life don't align with that of the Apostle Paul. Sometimes I get them a little out of balance. I don't focus so much on what God would have me focus on. But the top priority of God is still to see souls saved. We came together in this church today. You know what God's top priority is? His number one concern right at this very moment. His number one concern right now is that if there is one person lost in this room, that they would not leave this auditorium before you accept Christ as your Savior. His number one concern. In fact, the Bible says heaven is invested in this process because in heaven right now, there's people waiting uh, on, on the edge of their seat. And the Bible says when one sinner repents, there is great joy in heaven. Did you know that this morning if somebody gets saved in our service today and says, I'm not able to get to heaven on my own, but I trust Jesus as the only lover and Savior of my soul. I trust in Him. Did you know when that happens, it's like a huge arena in heaven explodes with excitement because someone got saved. God's priority for this service today is that every person would leave here with a hundred percent confidence that if they were to die right now, they would go to heaven. I want you to see the first priority for having true happiness in the trials of life is follow God's plan for your life. Number two, focus on God's priority in life. And then number three, find God in the pains of life. Now here's the issue. Paul's situation is not good right now. He has now appealed to Caesar. He will be transported to Rome. He will sit in a Mamertine prison and eventually die in Rome. 
I want you to take your Bible to the uh, 20th chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, verses 8 through 14. I want you to see what the Apostle Paul knows without a shadow of a doubt right now. Paul comes to the house of Philip the Evangelist and a prophet by the name of Agabus prophesies something regarding him. Notice in verse number 8 of chapter 21. And the next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which, had, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. What does he say? He says, If you go to Jerusalem, you will be captive. They will capture you. They will incarcerate you. Paul, the Holy Spirit has revealed this to me. And when we heard these things, both we and they that of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul, don't go. Don't do it. They're going to capture you. They're going to incarcerate you. Don't go, Paul. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am now ready not only to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He was completely confident in God here. And you say, oh, he's just being stubborn. He's being hard-headed. No, no, no. He is being confident in God's power to preserve his life. And he is trusting in God's plan, whatever that may be for his life. You see, Paul understood one truth that many of us don't get. The Christian servant is invincible as long as you're in God's plan. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? I mean God's not done using you until He's done using you. And the safest place for God's servant, whether it be in the heart of Africa or in, in China, serving in an underground church this morning, or even in the, the very uh, most Muslim parts of, uh, of Pakistan, the safest place for you is right in the center of God's will. And you can try to, to get around danger and you can try to skirt uh, potential uh, 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 devastating things. But the truth is, the servant of God is invincible when God's power is keeping him. Amen. Paul had it. He understood that. In fact, he understood the greatest concept of life and it is this. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does that mean? It means his life was defined by his pursuit of Jesus. And if that culminated in death as it did for many of the apostles, that was fine with him. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. You notice, God is not visibly seen in most people's life until times get really bad. You know, there's this prosperity gospel, there's this thing within Christianity that kind of teaches that that Jesus would just have you be happy and healthy. Not primarily, I think Jesus' main concern is that you would be holy, not healthy and happy. 
But, but we have replaced God's priority. And we say, well, if I'm a servant of God and God has all power, then God must want me to be happy. I'll be prosperous as long as I'm pursuing God. And nothing bad will ever happen to me. That could not be farther from the truth. Study the examples of the early church. All of them had bad times. All of them had hard times. In fact, you keep going throughout world history. The church is the most heavily persecuted organization of all time. Bad times will happen. But what I see in Scripture and what I've noticed in my own life, when times get the hardest, that's when God leads the most clearly. It's like the three Hebrew children. Jesus didn't show up on the plane when they wouldn't bend and bow. It was when they were in the furnace at the hottest part of their trial when Jesus showed up. You know what the psalmist says in Psalm 23? He says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Sadly enough, what makes you happy for a lot of Christians? The answer is, well, when things aren't bad. Happiness is found at the absence of conflict. Happiness is found when everything is going according to plan and the bank account's full and the car's running well and the kids are all saying, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, which, by the way, that's how mine act all the time. Happiness is found when there are no problems in life, but I would suggest to you that happiness can be had in the hardest times of life because it's at that moment you realize God is with you and God is keeping you. A poll some years ago evaluated uh, and polled many Christians and it said that more than six out of ten Christians surveyed expressed belief that God wants them to be prosperous. 17%, that kind of staggered me, but I believe probably the poll would even be a higher percentage now. 17% of Christians believed in the prosperity gospel movement. My friend, happiness in the Christian life is not found in the absence of negative things. It is found in the presence of God. Happiness is knowing every night you lay your head that you are uh, you lay your head on your pillow that you are right in the center of God's will and that the priorities of your life align with his you are being a witness you are being a testimony for those around you and it is in the hardest times of life that you will clearly see God's hand in fact truth be told the whole sermon can be boiled down to this happiness in life is knowing God do you know him <laughs> 